Please open your Bibles with me again this evening to Psalm 107. We're considering verses 10 through 16. I'm going to read the first 16 verses just to, again, set in the context. But before we, um, before we read the Word of God, if you will, just uh, permit me an account. Imagine, if you can, Louis' experience. World War II, the plane in which she was uh, in uh, crash-landed in the ocean west of the Hawaiian Islands. Eight of the 11 crew perished in that crash. Three were left alive in two small life, ra life rafts. One of those three died in, after 33 days, and the other two floated for 47 days, some 2,000 miles in the ocean. They finally came to the Marshall Islands, and they were immediately captured by an enemy ship. But they were treated well and cared for for a few days. And then for nearly two years, Louis and others suffered in various prisoner of war camps. They were starved. They were beaten. They were enslaved. They were often threatened with death. Some guards were sadistic in singling them out for mistreatment. And two days before a kill-all POW's order was to be carried out, a fortnight after Hiroshima and 11 days after Nagasaki, bombings that the POWs who survived were convinced saved their lives, an American plane flew over the POW camp, its red lights, its red code lights blinking rapidly. As it flew past, a radio man near Louis read the signals and suddenly cried out, Oh, the war is over. And in the celebration following a bath in the river, Louis stood on wavering legs, emaciated, sick, and dripping wet. In his tired mind, two words were repeating themselves over and over. I'm free. I'm free. Psalm 107 tells no less a compelling story. And so hear the word of God, and again, our focus will be on verses 10 uh, through 16, but I'll begin reading in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in iron. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. He has 
broken the bond. God has, for his people, broken the bond. And this psalm, as I mentioned this morning, calls upon us to give thanks to God. It does that primarily not by way of commands, but by way of recounting God's goodness to his people. And even though I just said it this morning, some of you might have forgotten, my aim is to encourage you to give thanks by way of recounting God's works, God's goodness to his people. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. This morning we focused in on that first phrase of verse 1. This time I want to focus in on the phrase that goes with the call to give thanks in verse 15. Give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love, for his steadfast love. Verse 15 is a repeat of verse 8. Verse 21 and 31 repeat that same thought, those same words again. Give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love. Some of you probably know that this Old Testament word is a word that's hard to translate in a word. And so if you look at your English Bible translations, you'll see different words used here in the, in the ESV, steadfast love. In the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, uh, faithful love. In some translations, covenant love, loving kindness, goodness. Whatever, however you translate, and the reason for a variety of translations is because it's a word that's so rich that we don't have a single English word that captures the nuances of that. Uh, one has tried in a phrase, in a way that I think is useful, uh, you might find it a surprising place for theological uh, education, but in the Jesus Storybook Bible, subtitled, Every Story Whispers His Name, the author defines this covenant love this way. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I think there's a lot of theological accuracy in that phrase of words to describe this word. Give thanks to God for his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This psalm calls us to say and to sing our thanks to God for his faithful love. That idea of God's faithful love, God's steadfast love, God's covenant love is repeated over and over in the psalms. 129 times that word occurs in the book of Psalms. Six times in this psalm. 26 times in Psalm 136, but it's also found throughout the scripture. Sometimes I think in places that we might not expect it to be. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, in the explanation of the second commandment, the context of the jealousy of God and his willingness to bring consequences of those who hate him to three and four generations, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep God revealed himself to Moses, repeating twice this description of himself in that passage that we're familiar with in Exodus 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love 
to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. God, as he was making his covenant with David, David wanted to build God a house. And though Nathan the prophet at first said, do what is in your heart to do, God spoke to Nathan and said, no, tell David it's not him who will build me a house, but I will build him a house, and his son will build a house for me. And in that description, as, as it's given in First Chronicles 17, of that covenant relationship of God with David, and the promise of God to raise up a greater son following David, he says this, for I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will not remove my faithful love from him as I removed it from the one who is before you. I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. And we think of Solomon, and we know there's got to be one greater than Solomon. And though the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, as you know, and the New Testament primarily in the Old Testament primarily in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, we see this, this faithful love, this steadfast love, this covenant love of God captured in the New Testament in this agape love and mercy. But it's not merely captured in words. It's captured in the person of Jesus Christ. And so John writes in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God said, I am the one who abounds in faithful love and truth. God said, Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the faithful love of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For his faithful love made known to us in the person and work of God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and for his wonderful works to you. And I'll just, a little side note, if you're following along in the outline, some of the spaces I didn't leave, if you can fit a long word in a short space, go for it. I think this psalm points out four dramatic contrasts describing God's faithful love and his wonderful works to his people. We see in chapter 10, some set in darkness and the shadow of death. And what God does is he moves from shadow, he moves his people from shadows to sunshine. And I'd encourage you to write sunshine with an O and not a U. Because he is the sun rising and shining in our hearts. These who lived in the shadow of death were familiar with those words from the 23rd Psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow, or the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Certainly you all have known the death of someone close to you. Perhaps some of you have experienced being yourself in the shadow of death. We've had just in the last week been known to some of us in our small denomination, Gordon Ketty, Bob McFarland, just read today, Robert O'Neill, Jay O'Neill's brother. We know what it is to be in the shadow. We know what it is to have miserable circumstances and experience 
And if you're a Christian and you're trying to present a happy face all the time, that, that life is just always happy and everything is always good, you need to read the Scripture some more. And you need to talk to people who you see weeping and yet with a confidence in the Lord. We experience difficulty. We experience miserable circumstances. We, we read about it in war stories like Louis, like the Jews in Germany. But we experience it. We experience misery and difficulty. It's fascinating to me that in the Lord's providence, in the context of this psalm and this point, I went to Psalm 88. And God, almost providentially, yes, entirely providentially, brought Psalm 88 as your reading for this evening. In many translations, you'll, you'll, you may know in a footnote there's a little bit of variety in that last phrase, but it can be translated, darkness is my closest friend. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've felt that way. I hope it's not the case, but maybe some of you are here tonight feeling that darkness is your closest friend. And what we have to understand is that our darkness is our darkness. We don't have to compare our darkness with everybody else's darkness to see whose darkness is the darkest. In fact, we're told that to compare ourselves with ourselves is not wise. If you've been in a dark place or if you're in a dark place, God knows and God cares. And he promises to take you from shadow to Ben, I don't know. Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be next week? Is it going to be next year? Maybe some of you right now are in sunshine. You're enjoying a, a life that's like the glorious couple of days we've had here after the storm. And maybe tomorrow you'll find yourself in the shadow of death. But even when you're there, the wonderful works of God for his people is that he takes you from shadow to sunshine. He brings you out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. When Jesus began his public ministry in Matthew's account, we're told as he went to the region of Capernaum, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And it has dawned. And if you've been in despair, if you're in despair, and you're not in Christ, I urge you, I plead with you, repent and believe the gospel. And it may be that tomorrow the darkness will be just as dark. And someday, the darkness will lift. Shadows to sunshine. The second promise from this psalm, verse 10, from fetters to freedom. From fetters to freedom. I know we don't talk about fetters very often, but I need to talk about that. They were bound in affliction and irons. God's people knew slavery in Egypt. They knew exile in Babylon. It seems that this psalm was written after the exile as they were being set free. But that bondage, that being in fetters, is often used in the Scripture to describe us 
in our relationship to sin. Romans 6 talks about being slaves to sin. And if you're a Christian, you know what it was like to be a slave to sin. Even if God saved you at a very young age, you've come to understand that through your study of the Word of God. I was telling some of the men, with two older sisters, it didn't take me long to find out that I was a sinner. And that's not blaming them. It's like slaves to sin. First Peter 2, slaves of corruption. And if you're not a Christian, you are a slave. The POWs with Louis, including Louis himself, at times stole, at times broke the rules. They defied their guards, even at great personal cost, but they still weren't free. But God breaks the bonds. He shatters the gates. He cuts the bars. And for these, the people of God who knew the word of God, those would have been familiar words to them. For they would have known of the prophecy of Isaiah, in which God says this, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, and level the exalted places, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. And we can read in Ezra and Nehemiah of the joy of the people of God in knowing that those bonds had been broken, in knowing that they were back in the land that God had promised to them, that God had taken them from fetters to freedom. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his wonderful works to you. The third contrast given in this text is from punishment to presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, gifts. From punishment to presence. You see, we've got to understand, and I, I hope you heard it in the reading, much of this difficulty, much of this bad stuff, was due to the sin of the verse 11 and 12. They had rebelled against the words of God. They had spurned the counsel of the Most High. Do you ever do that? Do I? Well, I won't speak for you, but I have a pretty good guess, and I'll speak. And what God promises is not the punishment that his people deserve, but the gift of his mercy, the present, if you will, of the deed. One writer in commenting on this psalm makes the point that sin always promises to bring freedom, but it always only creates bondage. And so let me encourage you, young folks and old folks, and all of you in between, when you see the lure of sin, it will tempt you, and it will make you think, if you do this, you'll be free. And sometimes I think for teenagers and young adults, there's a sense I can, I can get out from under my parents' authority and I can be free. Sin is a harsh master. It is a cruel tyrant of a master. Much, not all, but much of the difficulty that Israel found themselves in 
was caused or made worse by their own sin. And much of the difficulty that we find ourselves in is sometimes caused by, but often made worse by our own sin. I think there's at least two mistakes we can make when faced with difficulty. We can say it's obvious this is God's punishment, and usually we don't say that about ourselves. We say that about other people that we're seeing have difficulties. Well, obviously they haven't been living a faithful Christian life, or these bad things wouldn't be happening to them. On the other hand, we can completely ignore them. It has nothing to do with our relationship with God. I'm secure in Christ, and these just happen to happen. Well, nothing happens to happen. God brought on his people bondage because of their sin. And we may face bondage because of our sin. Yet God has done wonderful things. From what we deserve due to sin and rebellion to undeserved favor. Some of you may be familiar with the, the DVD series. Uh, it's an investigative Bible study, evangelistic Bible study series called Christianity Explored. And in one of the introductions, a little girl tears open a present. And she's excited. She rips the paper off the present and sees what she gets. And then she turns serious to her parents and says, okay, how much do I owe you? You see, we don't owe for gifts. We don't owe for presents. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the punishment that we deserve to the presence, the kindness of God. We never deserve the wonderful things that God does for his people. Never. Often we think when things are going well, we've done well. We would do well to heed Jesus' words in Luke 17. In the context of forgiving someone who offends you 70 times, 7 times, or 77 times. A little difficulty in translation. It's a bunch of times, no matter how you count it. And in that context, what does Jesus say? So you, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. You can't, you can't earn the affection, the care, the mercy of God. God brings his kindness through grace. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Shadows to sunshine, fetters to freedom, punishments to presence, in verse 13 and following, from distress to deliverance. From distress to deliverance. They were in trouble. They were in distress. What did they do? Well, let me ask first, what do you what do you do when you're in distress? Really, think about that. What do you do when you're in distress? Particularly if you feel like there's a sense in which the distress that you're in is a result of your own sin. Do you think to yourself, I just need to clean up my act. And if I can ha maintain some pattern of good behavior, then God will accept me. No, God will not accept you on the basis of a pattern of your good behavior. God will only and always accept you on the perfection of Christ. And in that perfection, you strive for perfection. In the righteousness of Christ, you strive to live a righteous life. And so if you're in trouble, and if you're in trouble because of your sin, call to the Lord in your distress. 
And what does God do? He delivers from destruction. God delivers his people. He saved them. He brought them out. He delivered them from trouble, even self-caused trouble. I don't mean to make light of sin. I don't want you to go away from here thinking, well, the preacher said I can sin all I want to sin. Well, that's not what the preacher was trying to say. If that's what you heard, I think it was a hearing problem, not a speaking problem, but I might have misspoken. But what I want you to know is that if you are Christ's, you can never sin so much that God will love you less. And you can never do so much that God will accept you more. It's in Christ that you're brought from distress to deliverance. Step back with me for a moment to Louis. He was freed when the war ended on the 20th of August, 1945. The formal surrender was 2nd of September. And it took months, about four months, until he was finally home. He was able to to deplane and run to his sobbing mother and fold himself around her. Cara, Mama Mia. The account of his life said it was a long time. He was a celebrity. He was a hero. But he was unable to handle the applause. He had no work. The job market was glutted with returning servicemen. Had little money. Occasionally he could turn that into a good investment, but often he was taken advantage of. He married, but he had to sleep on the floor of a friend's house. He had flashbacks so vivid that he was certain that he was back in the POW camps. He returned to running. He had been an Olympic caliber runner. Some had thought he would be the first man to break the four-minute mile. But as he returned to running, he re-injured a POW camp wound, and so he was unable to run anymore. So he experienced four years of darkness and drunkenness. The only way that he could that he could deal with the pain he had experienced. He was consumed with rage. Nothing motivated him more than the return to Japan and kill his most vigorous captor, nicknamed the Bird. One night he dreamed of strangling the Bird and woke to the screams of his wife as he was strangling her in his night. A baby girl was born to them. He was enraptured with her, but he couldn't stop drinking. His wife left him for a time, and she returned, but said she was only staying until they could get a divorce. And in October of 49, the Reverend Billy Graham had a tent crusade, and his wife went, but she was converted. And she came home and said she wouldn't divorce her husband, but she asked him to go and hear Billy Graham preach. And he repeatedly refused, but he finally went. Billy Graham was preaching on God's knowledge of our sin, and Louis raged. He thought, I'm a good person, but he knew even as he thought that, that he was lying to himself. And at the invitation, Louis grabbed his wife and bowled his way out of the tent. And she urged him to go again. And again, he refused over and over. But finally, he relented. And he said, I'll go, but we leave at the invitation. And he went, and Graham preached on why God allows suffering. And at the invitation, Louis got up to leave, and Billy Graham says, no one leaves now. You can leave when I'm preaching, but not now. 
And Louis had a flashback of when he was lying in, a, in that life raft. And he remembered a promise that he had made to God and not kept. God, if you save me. And in, a, in almost a fight against himself. And just let me say, I'm not sure that the Billy Graham altar call way of evangelism is the best way of evangelism. And Louis heard it. He believed the gospel. His wife watched him on the drive home. When he got home, it was the time when he normally would start drinking to get drunk. And he poured out all the whiskey down the And his life was changed. And for 63 years, until he died at age 97, it, it wasn't enough that he was set free from a POW camp. He had to be set free from his own sin and misery. And that is what God does. And if you're a Christian, your story might not be as dramatic as the one that's recounted in this book, Unbroken. Fascinating book. I encourage you to read it. it probably none of, us, none of our stories are this fascinating, but they're no less significant. God has broken the fetters. He has crushed the bars. He has smashed the gates. And you, if you are in Christ, are no longer in bondage to sin and misery and death. And His faithful love will be with you from now till forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for He has broken the bonds. Jesus said this, If the Son sets you free, the S-O-N, you will be free you who were formerly slaves to sin, give thanks to the Lord. He has broken the bonds. O oh God, our Father in heaven, maybe our stories seem boring, but they're not. For you have done wonderful things for us. You have been kind to us in ways beyond measure. You have shown your faithful covenant love to us and you will show it on through eternity. You have taken your people from shadows to sunshine. You have taken us from fetters to freedom. You have taken us from punishment to presence. You have taken us from distress to deliverance. And again, Lord, I would pray, if any here, young or old, are still enslaved to sin, would you even tonight break those bonds, bring them to faith and repentance, let them talk with a parent, or an elder, they can talk to me. Lord, would you open their hearts to the gospel. And for those of us who are in Christ, no matter how dark the shadows are, may we remember the freedom that we have in Christ, that we have been set free indeed. And may we rejoice, and may we give you thanks, now and forever.